Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Prod- Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. You can go to thedispatch.com, where it's both a uh, dessert topping and a floor wax, and we'll do everything that you need it to do. Um, so as you know, we tend to frown on rank punditry around here, but every now and then, the times demand it, and we thought, as much as I love my friend Jim Garrity... Um, we thought we would go, um, to an actual expert on these things. And, and one might even call him a cephologist. You can look it up. Uh, just note the P is silent. And, uh, we have Josh Krauschammer from National Journal. He's the Against the Grain columnist and he has a great podcast called Against the Grain. And he's the politics editor at National Journal. And his Twitter handle is Hotline Josh. Does the hotline still exist? It, it does, and I still I'm sort of the editor emeritus. I uh-huh. have a sort of a, a keen attachment to the hotline. That's where I got got my start. Steve Steve yeah. Hayes was was a hotliner back in the day. My wife was a hotliner. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. there's an alumna. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. I've been at NJ and I've been closely associated with the hotline for the last decade. But there's just an amazing alum alumni group of, of people that get politics, cover politics, analyze politics. And- yeah, so I mean, it's kind of funny for listeners who don't know. There was a time in Washington, from you correct my math, say 1994, 95 to about 2000, where it was like the most important document in Washington, uh, mostly distributed by fax, um, and it was basically. A very, I mean, I, I, if I call it a clipping service, that's unfair. But it was a very smart, curated clipping service of things in the news, right? Yeah, it was aggregation and analysis, especially before you have newsletters, you have Twitter, you have blogs. It was pre, pre the, really the first of its kind to analyze and break down all the political news when you really didn't have the technology to figure out what was going on in New Hampshire or Nevada, right. any of the big Senate races. Um, now, there's, there's a lot more competition. The internet has cha- changed a lot of things. But one of the you know, one of the things that it, it always has had is just a, a deep dive into everything politics from yeah. the presidential onto, you know, the, the, the small house races. So it's, it it's a political super, junkies type of type of Yeah, it was like, it was like, black tar heroin for political junkies and um my wife one of her first early not first experiences but one of her early experiences in washington was she would have to drive out to the washington times loading dock at like 3 a.m to get the fresh copies of the washington times to get to curate the stuff and get it into the hotline so i started working at the hotline in 2003 as a as an intern and uh Chuck Todd, who was the editor back then, was yeah. regaling us with stories about the, those same glor- glor- glory years. That was really the end of the clipping years. I mean, I think I think I, I kind of missed the the days where you actually clipped the newspaper and put yeah. it, put it in the file. But we used to print out like literally. I mean, we must have wasted a lot of cut down a lot of trees, printed out you know hundreds of, of sheets of paper of all the clips of all the news clips, and then we would sort them out and aggregate them. And it was a big big process. Yeah, and it was. I mean, when I started at National Review Online. That was when it, I was at the dawn of it being an, an online internet document kind of thing. But when I first came to Washington, you only could get, because the internet basically didn't exist. Um, I'm not counting DARPAnet. Um, and so it would come over fax, and it was like 60 pages or something like that. And we, one of the only times in my youth at AI that I truly got yelled at was by infringing on somebody else's subscription to the hotline. Because you, you guys, you guys were like, mafiosos about enforcing that we had and we still have a a remarkably loyal sort of a loyal elite audience and the one story i have uh, when i was i was editor for for a brief amount of time 
um, we took away this link that allowed you to print all 100 pages of the hotline. And this is well into like 2012, 2013, yeah, yeah. when everything was digital, whenever most people read it on their computer screen. And within five minutes, I got a call from Mitch McConnell's office or maybe someone from the business side relaying a message from, yeah. from Mitch McConnell's office saying, where's the print button? <laughs> the senator needs a copy of today's hotline on his desk. And to be honest, I didn't think people still read yeah, you know, yeah, at yeah. that point. I thought people had kind of migrated off the hard copy. But, you know, we still have a pretty, especially on Capitol Hill, a lot of people that still want the, the hard copy on, on their boss's desk. At National Review, um, for a long time, I don't know when it started, but- they had, it wasn't a crossword puzzle. It was an acrostic thing, some sort of word game, Sudoku meets crossword puzzle. And surveys said that only like 1% of readers read it, right? It took up valuable last page of the magazine, real estate. And um, we can't. Well, ultimately canceled it. And we got a livid call <laughs> from Justice Scalia, <laughs> Who it was part of his ritual to always do it first thing, and like I remember Ed Capano, the former publisher of National Review, for years he always kind of dreaded seeing Scalia at like dinner parties or events because the <laughs> first thing he would always mention is why are why don't you put that damn thing back you know so. People get attached. No, and we have, we have like the swizzle question of the you know trivia question at, at, at the end of every morning newsletter, and you know the names of people that are competing against each other. It's probably the same people that we're probably, doing it, but it, it is like it is it is a remarkable you know sign of you've made it when you can kind of win the the swizzle award and, and get that get that honor in the hotline. It was a huge deal to be mentioned in the hotline. I mean, just it was just huge. Um, all right, so with that memory lane having cleared off the sort of amateur listeners who really. You know, just want to get straight to the punditry. Let's get to the punditry. Um, let's just sort of start. What's you were up in New Hampshire? Yeah. How do you think that went? <laughs> uh, well, if you told me uh, three weeks ago that Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg would be in the top three, and Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden would yeah. be not just at the bottom, but not even hitting double digits, you know, I would have been pretty surprised. Uh, I will say, going in the final week, I, I was at a bunch of Klobuchar events. I saw Biden, his last event in New Hampshire, and you could tell that that for Biden, things were getting pretty uh, bad. Uh, he, you could hear a pin drop in, in the high school gymnasium in his last campaign event. Uh, he didn't have a whole lot of energy, and it seemed like he knew he, he was losing support and yeah. pulled out of the state at the last day as people were voting. Klobuchar is interesting just because she, I think, could make the best case for electability just just mm. on the on the resume and on her performance on the campaign trail. But people just didn't take her seriously until until she, I guess, overachieved expectations in in Iowa. Um, she got twenty percent of the vote. Uh, she kind of. Filled in a lot of lanes, did pretty well um, when you look at the broad electorate. But you know, she also has an issue with money and yeah. whether she can turn that around in, in, in the wake of you know Nevada and South Carolina more diverse electorates, and then Super Tuesday where you need a whole lot of money to compete, and also just staffing up in time, right? I mean, that's a huge problem with scaling up that quick. It is, though. I will say that she didn't have much of an operation in, in New Hampshire. I, yeah. Iowa was her state, neighboring state to Minnesota. You know, she had a Midwestern appeal. She didn't have a huge operation in New Hampshire. Once she won Iowa, she, yeah, yeah, yeah. she, she got a little little you know momentum at the debate especially. You know, the, the interesting question, though, I, I'm looking at is the question of lanes and is there like a, you know, is there a left lane and a center lane? How, how do you look at this whole field? Um, I've always looked at it not just in ideological terms, but also in socioeconomic terms. Uh-huh. And, you know, what's interesting is when you look at New Hampshire, you also look at the Iowa results. You know, the, I, I kind of look at it as having four quadrants 
broadly speaking, in, in, in the Democratic field. Quadrant talk is why you're here. This right is now. why. You know, I know you can appreciate <laughs> that, Jonah. So, I mean, Bernie does, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking broadly. There's some exceptions and, and there's some overlap. But, you know, Bernie's the guy of the left, but he also disproportionately draws from working class blue collar guys. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Warren, when she was, you know, relevant, <laughs> she was on the left, but she was drawing more from women, but more more importantly, like upscale right. liberals. Your wine li- track. Limousine, wine track liberals. Yeah. Um, you had Biden when he was, again, when he was on his game, was drawing from working class moderates, uh, African-Americans being a big part of that coalition. And then you have this Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and maybe now Bloomberg, yeah. uh, as he comes into the picture on Super Tuesday, kind of from that upscale corner of the party. And that's, by the way, the part of the party that's been expanding since President Trump got elected. You have right. a lot of soft Republicans, uh, especially in New Hampshire, that probably uh, jumped jumped in the Disaffected suburbanites, college-educated, married. Independents can vote um, in New Hampshire in either primary, so they voted in many – and if you look at the suburban numbers, you know, Klobuchar and Buttigieg did pretty well in in those precincts. So, I mean, the the, the problem for Democrats is not only do they they lack a party leadership that will guide them, tell them who the most electable Democrat is, but there's just no one who can build beyond a a small faction of the party. Mm -hmm. And it got even more more confusing. I mean, New Hampshire did not lend any any clarity to the process. Well – it did. I, I, I don't know. It, it lent some clarity only insofar as Elizabeth Warren's kind of <laughs> gone, right? I mean, she di- she didn't win the Massachusetts suburb vote in Southern New Hampshire. What 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 do you do? You have an explanation for it? So I was at a Warren campaign event, and uh, you know, she. Well, I've written this many times, and I've been very bearish on Warren long before. You know, when she was leading in the polls, and you know, my theory of the case with her is that. She had a really good thing going for her in that she was one of the leading economic populists who had broad appeal, unlike right. Bernie Sanders. She never needed to narrow her appeal to just the woke left wing of the party. And if you look at all the data, you did the Pew studies, uh-huh. all, all the studies that have been done of the Democratic Party electorate, the Twitter left, the, the woke uh, part of the electorate is very small. Right. And Bernie's got a lot of it anyways. So the fact that she was playing to this, not you know, fine, own that economic populist space, that that's something she's good at talking about. She really uh, has a passionate following because of it. When she talks about Israel or foreign policy, she, she sounds ignorant. Yeah. When she talks about health care. You know, she was owning that. She was trying to match Bernie Sanders on supporting Medicare for all. But when she kind of slightly backtracked from that, she looked like she didn't really have a policy. She didn't yeah. really know, know what she was talking about. Um, because she made this campaign made this strategic decision to just be Bernie, but but a more maybe establishment-friendly version of Bernie, she kind of lost any appeal to people outside of that woke left-wing side of the party. And now in the final weeks of the campaign, I was, you know, in New Hampshire, she's trying to pitch herself as a unity candidate. Yeah, no, I know. Well, you're not a unity candidate when you're, you're, you're basically the left-wing candidate for months and months and months. So that she's, I mean, strategically, that was a big mistake. You know, she, you go to a Warren rally and it almost feels like an event, it almost feels like the left-wing version of Ted Cruz, uh-huh. you know, with the Secular, evangelical, you know, woke wokeness all, all, all around you. Um, that's not a that's not a strategy for winning. Don't think her campaign is dead just yet, just because it's you know we don't know who's going to win this thing. And theoretically, she could do better in Nevada. She could do better maybe in South Carolina. But I I, I agree with you broadly that to that her her, her path is super narrow. Yeah, I, I doubt we can get the audio of it. But there was a great moment this week where Steve Inskeep, um asked her, can you just give us a sense of a, is there a state you can win? And she, she has this thing where she, she makes people feel stupid for asking obvious questions, or at least she sounds like she's trying to. She's like, well, 
I'm running for the whole country, <laughs> which is in other words, she doesn't have a state that she can win. Do you do you see a state that she can win? She, from a purely tactical level, she's pulling her ads in a lot of other states and putting them in Nevada uh-huh. and Maine. In Maine. Maine, uh-huh. which has, I, I think they have a March primary. Um, Nevada, I mean, she really needs to do well in Nevada. Um, I don't think that's looking likely, but if you look at what her campaign is doing, they're basically putting all the money into the caucuses, hoping to get some good coverage out of a strong finish. I, I think that's a long shot. Uh, the other thing, I, you know, w- one of the things I was I caught when I was out in New Hampshire was that one of her top surrogates, Ayanna Presley, was on CNN the night before the uh, primary, and they were asked. She was asked like, "What's what's Warren's message? How's she going to win this thing?" And she said, "You know, intersectionality is going to be this <laughs> winning message." I don't even think the Warren campaign would want a surrogate saying that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and so I, I just. Again, I agree with you, Jonah. Her, she had some potential. I think she had some things that, that she had going for her. But her, her, every time she had to make a tough decision strategically, whether it was the whole DNA test at the beginning of the race, whether it was her decision on how to position herself on health care, she's made the wrong decision. Yeah. So I never bought that this was some brilliant campaign, this well-organized campaign that was just ready to pounce. Um, and so just before we move off of her, conceivably for the last time in our lives, <laughs> um, uh so do you, I mean, do you think that basically, is she the candidate that lives within very online Twitter and no place else? Or is there, I mean, is that, you know, there's, everyone likes to talk about the Trump bubble. There are bubbles everywhere you look these days, right? She lives, is it that, that she took online Twitter, I mean, our online, the online world much too seriously? Yeah, she definitely has a- over-representation in the, in, the, in the social media, in the activist world that you see, see on Twitter. But she does, I mean, the one thing that she had going for her is that there were a lot of Democratic strategists who hate Bernie, yeah. but, are, but were, were jumping on the band, like, you know, top, top level Dem operatives that really thought Warren was the ticket to yeah. success. So, I mean, she, that was the one thing she had going for her. I always ask the Warren folks, like, well, you don't disagree on, with Bernie on anything, so why is he unelectable, and right. why is Warren such a, a, a compelling person to work for? Um, I didn't really ever get a satisfactory answer, but I think the results are speaking for themselves now. Yeah, I mean, so I just wrote this thing, it'll be out later today, but this idea of her as a unity candidate, you know, it's premised on this, like, like Bill Clinton was a kind of a unity candidate in that at the presidential level, the Democrats had been locked out of the White House a lot, and he decided he was going to triangulate against sort of the leftmost and the rightmost and all that kind of stuff. Her argument for being a unity candidate is that it's it's syllogistic, right? It's like if everybody rallies around me, I'll be the unifying candidate. But there's no there's nothing in her record that says she's not from the left wing faction of the party. No, not at all. And uh, you know, even I, I think I mean, if you look at all the polls, I don't believe in polls this early to determine electability. I think it's a little bit misleading to, to extrapolate right. like that. But she's dead last of yeah. all the leading candidates in terms of looking at those polls. I also think she's gotten very soft media coverage. Con, 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 a lot of people think she, she's getting it on the chin now. Yeah. Um, you know, I I think she sort of has an Obama halo in that she's got very friendly coverage from the people that have covered her. I don't think she's been, she, she, frank, frank, frankly, one of the problems is she wasn't scrutinized as much in those earlier days when maybe she could have done a course correction. Right. And it, when, when, when voters voted or when people started to pay closer attention, her weaknesses became much more apparent. Yeah, that's one of the things that's really hard to explain. I mean, you know this world much better than I do. But a critical press is actually doing some candidates a huge favor if they're critical early because then you, you take a hit, you bounce back. I would have assumed that the DNA test would have been that moment where she kind of got her act together, but I guess not. Um, all right, where to proceed from here? Um, we can talk about 
since, since we're talking about the people who are walking wounded, um, do you think Biden can turn around? As we're recording this today, the Culinary Union in Nevada, which seemed to be like the um, the elite shock troops of the of the of the empire for um, Biden, have announced that they're not going to endorse any candidate. Right. So there's this whole like activate. The culinary union, and that would save Biden. So if that doesn't happen, where where do you where do you think? How much longer are we going to be talking about Biden? Well, look, I, I'm pessimistic with him too for his long term prospects. He's running low on money, and I think he, the fascinating thing about we, we talk about this process, and it takes a year. Uh, campaigns are raising money and trying to to win support before it, people long before people ever go to the polls. Uh, by, we all knew anyone who went to a Biden event knew he wasn't the same uh, candidate. Yeah. He wasn't as energetic. He wasn't as on top of things as he was four years ago. Uh, and the whole point of Iowa and New Hampshire, the retail political states, presumably are to figure out like these are the voters that are paying the closest attention. They pick this stuff up quicker than right. um, your average voter that's watching on TV. So the thinking was that Biden, if he sustained himself in the first you know few months of his campaign, and that was, that was certainly my thinking, that he would be fine. And he maybe wouldn't win Iowa, but he'd be in the top two or three, and, and then he'd go to South Carolina, and he'd have the support from African Americans. What was so stunning about Biden's collapse is when it happened and how fast it happened. Yeah. Um, I mean, even when I was out in Iowa uh, a month, was it a month ago for the last debate, he was, a lot of pundits and myself included thought he did fine. You know, he, he survived that last test of scrutiny, and he was, you know, at first or second place in those Iowa caucus polls. Um, but, you know, seeing him in person, you do see, you do see what, 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 what happened. Um, you know, he's just not as sharp as he once was. And he event, seemed angry in those town halls. Well, he has a he has a tactic of yelling. Yeah. I mean, you see this at the debates sometimes. Whenever he needs to get his energy up and he, he talks about Trump and Charlottesville and racism, anti-Semitism, he, he gets gets angry. He get, gets his Irish up. Yeah. And, and he actually does OK when he does that. The event I went to in New Hampshire with him. I think he just felt off his game after doing so poorly in Iowa, and he, he was got a question about health care, and someone was talking about their personal family tragedy, and he ended up going on for, you know, 15, 20 minutes about, like, diseases and cancer, and it was really, I mean, I'm not, it was sad. I mean, he yeah. lost his, he lost sort of the train of thought, and you could hear a pin drop in that high school gymnasium, um, and I, it, everyone felt bad for, for, I mean, everyone in the press was sort of like, when is he gonna gonna yeah. get things going? Um, you know, I think he has a he has the firewall in South Carolina. There have been some polls that have been out in the last couple of days that suggest that African Americans still are hanging with him in the South. But this is a guy who was the, the national front runner. He he wasn't right. just the guy winning African American votes. He was winning moderate voters, working class voters. That that was a broad coalition he was building. Now he's just really relying on African American voters, yeah. and that's not, not enough to really get you to the nomination. So. Um... Now that we've talked about the apparent, right? You were you said three weeks ago you would have been re- surprised by these results. We could be surprised again, right? But uh, who's the right now? Who has the best odds to be the uh, nominee? And under what scenario does that happen? I, I think you have to say Bernie Sanders. Yeah. It just in terms of the best chance. I don't think it's a very. I don't think he's at fifty fifty. Uh-huh. But this is a guy who has a national following. He has a loyal base. It's going to get bigger. I mean, it's, I don't think it's going to get that much bigger, but it's going to get bigger than 25%. And most importantly, he has the money. He has this small donor uh, lineup of, of people he can keep going to that will allow him to raise money and compete uh, in this huge battleground of, of Super Tuesday states the first week of March. So you know, Bloomberg 
can do that and, and much more. St- I don't know. Steyer's going to be a non-factor, I think, by then. Um, no one, maybe maybe Pete Buttigieg can, can raise money. Uh, he's done well. He's exceeded expectations. But money matters when you're dealing with national you know, Super Tuesday, Super Tuesday states yeah. and beyond. These are big states. And, you know, the, the negative about Bernie is, that, first of all, these are proportional primaries. You're not Unlike the Republicans, like many of the states gave gave the winner all the delegates right. statewide. Uh, he, even if Bernie wins, he's still slowly racking up, uh, you know, a plurality of delegates. But if you're asking me who's who's more likely to to win the nomination at this point, I really don't think it's certainly not Biden. Uh, and it's certainly and Bloomberg, you know, is going to have his own issues uh, as we get to the debate stage and when his his vulnerabilities are, are put out there. Um. And so let's look at sort of the structural. I want to talk about House and Senate stuff a bit, but um, and what's happening in the era of Trump and all that. But um, the how to put this? The um, first of all, which system do you actually think do you think actually makes more sense? The proportional delegate thing or the winner take all thing, Republican versus Democrat? I, I think the proportional system is is a good system. In fact, all, both parties always fight the last war, right? Um, so it's it's kind of a Republicans remember thought that um, they didn't want someone like Ted Cruz or Rand Paul or you know to get ahead of steam. They thought that they would have Jeb Bush as as the guy that could really win early with all his money. So they they designed a system designed for Jeb Bush, and it turned out that Donald Trump took, basically hacked it and took advantage of it and really put put the party at a disadvantage. Um, for the Democrats, I, you know, the proportional system makes more sense, though, you know, given how many candidates are still in the race, they've basically guaranteed either a lengthy process where we won't, we won't know the nominee till April or May, or a growing possibility that this may be decided at the convention, or at least in the run-up to the convention, um, with, with no one coming close to the number of delegates necessary to, to clinch things. Um, you know, I, I think the democratic system works well, though I would have, you have so many states that allocate delegates on Super Tuesday, including California and Texas. Uh, it would have made, made more sense in an ideal system to push back some of those states, mm-hmm. spread it out, let people see how how, yeah. how how things develop. Because look, if you, if you live in Virginia and you're one of these like, you know, anti-Bernie Democrats who is trying to figure out who to vote for, you're not going to get a whole lot of clarity. And in, in you, it probably would be helpful to have people in enough states have more information, especially in a field that, that's this big. Um, so I wrote this column for the LA Times the other day because uh, I got this idea um, uh, from this guy, Seth Maskett, um, that, who makes made a persuasive case to me. I was doing an event in Denver, and we were on a panel together, and that one of the reasons why the Democratic primaries are such a hot mess is that um, normally, as you say, the generals fight the last war. At the very least, when you lose, there emerges some sort of rough consensus. They're always dissenters. But there's a rough consensus about why your team lost, right? And part of the problem was that because in 2016, Hillary Clinton, in fact, won um, the popular vote. and you had the chaos of Trump and Russia and this and that and whatever. And you had the Bernie Sanders people saying, you know, going to the bitter end, that there's been no consensus about why they lost in 2016. And Hillary muddied the waters even worse because for the first six months after she lost, it seemed like almost every single day she was coming out with another explanation about why she lost. It was sexism. It was Russia. It was fake news. It was, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, do you think the part of the problem, I mean, how 
what do you think about that thesis that the part of the problem the Democrats have is because they I would argue that they not only do they not have a consistent consensus about what their theory of the case for the loss in 2016 is, they're also a lot of them are working from this accept, uh, assumption that you can replicate the Obama strategy from 2008, that you just have a huge base election um, and sort of swamp the system by changing the nature of the electorate. The problem with that is that Obama was a very special kind of candidate. First, the African-American candidate. He kind of appealed to a lot of moderates and independents. Bernie Sanders is not Barack Obama. Elizabeth Warren's not Barack Obama. Biden's not Barack Obama. And going with that base strategy rather than going with the traditional win the center stuff is a big problem for them. So the Democratic Party is a party that's in flux. They, they've always been a, a party with a lot of different factions, interest groups, and they have to build that coalition together. And when the party infrastructure and institutions are weaker, it's hard to meld those those factions together and, and unite the party. Um, Biden was the one guy that was capable of doing that. Right. And that's why I think he, he – members of Congress got behind him early on. He did seem to have that institutional support until everything fell apart. Um, but no one else has been capable of broadening their appeal. Uh, the big challenge for Democrats, frankly, is that Obama – you know, dominant among African-American voters. Uh, he actually had a unique coalition in 08 in that he was able to meld the African-American vote with the upscale, wine-track, white vote. Usually, the, the historical trend has been you, the Democratic nominee melds the working-class white vote with the African-American vote. Uh, you know, in 88, it was actually the African-American vote went to Jesse Jackson and Dukakis yeah. won by basically getting both sides of the white vote eventually. Um, so the problem for, for the party now is that no one can fit any of the pieces of the puzzle together and, and it's going to be hard to do. And now you have Bloomberg coming in and throwing, you know, at least $350 million as of today <laughs> on television ads exponentially more than anyone else. And he's kind of, you know, he, he's undefined. Like he, yeah. he's had all kinds of identities throughout his political career. So th th there was that famous book in 2008, The Party Decides, where it basically argued that the party controls the nominees and the voters really don't have much of a say. Well, that was probably the last election where, where, where that yeah. mattered. Now you have this sort of weak husk of a, of a party system where Tom Perez has been bullied by the Bernie. I mean, Tom Perez got rid of superdelegates. That would have been very useful, theoretically, in, the, in, this, in this nomination Are process. they completely gone? Or I thought that they can, they can chime in on the second round at the convention. So if we have a contested convention, yeah. they, they, get back, they could get back in play. But who wants to see Bernie going into the yeah. convention, leaning in the delegate count, and then having these superdelegates that are hated by the – I mean, this, this is what – the Bernie folks wanted to change the rules, so that they basically made a compromise where they're basically not in play until – unless there is a contested convention. Well, of course, fighting the last war, this is the one election where we may see such a such a scenario. But yeah, without the super – I mean, you know, look, you could see superdelegates maybe helping the process along, but – you know, even members of even the elites, even the members of Congress who got behind Biden just to see him, you know, flail in the first two states. I, they don't know. I mean, you, and these, these these members of Congress that are endorsing in the last couple of weeks, they're getting behind Bloomberg. Yeah. I mean, they don't they don't know what to do. There was one guy, uh, Jared Golden, who, who's a Trump district, uh, uh, Trump district Democrat from Maine, backed Michael Bennett a week before the New Hampshire primary. <laughs> I mean, seriously, like the, the, so the, even the elites, I think part of the problem is the system, but also part of the problem is even the elites don't know. Who to get behind? Yeah. All right. So, I mean, again, I want to switch to more punishing in a second, but this is a running conversation on this podcast about my view, which I'm not alone in. John Ward at the Long Form uh, Long Game Podcast talks about this. Yuval Levin talks about this. That um, a big chunk of our problems today are because the parties are too weak, not because they're too strong. We talk about partisanship, but the problem is that historically, 
the parties are the things that can channel partisanship in productive ways. Now that they're so weak, they can't do that. So they can't get people to, you know, they can't, the party can't decide, as you put it. Um, and you have these elites like the superdelegates and whatnot. No one wants to take responsibility for an unpopular decision. But so they, they just sort of end up sloshing around with the tide. And um, um, so personally, I would like, you know, uh, our, our friend Amy Walter had that tweet thread that a lot of people paid attention to where she name checked John Ward as well. Um, that one of the reasons why the Iowa caucuses were one of the truly great fallops in modern American political history was because Bernie was one of these guys, it was an outsider, not a lifetime Democrat, doesn't care about the party, just cared about his movement and himself, forced these changes on the Iowa caucuses and the party just wasn't smart enough or strong enough or nimble enough um, to say no or to adjust to this stuff. And that's why they, they, they screwed up. So do you think the parties need to be stronger? Are you, are you still one of these people who thinks open that, that primaries are a wonderful thing? I mean, where do you come down on the structural question? So I'm in the middle of Yuval's book and I, I mean, he makes the profound point that, you know, institutions are now being used by partisans to be performative art right. and, and trying to show what Trump did. It's what Bernie AOC did. is yeah. doing that. And I, you know, that you can't, you there are too many gates to have gatekeepers. So there, there is a limitation to what parties can do. Um, John Rauch, uh, Rauch who mm-hmm. you know, used to work at National Journal with me, and he, he wrote an essay in The Atlantic recently, actually coming up with some decent small bore ideas uh, from the primary calendar to superdelegates to, to reforms that are not radical in any way, but just would be small things that the party reasonably could implement that would help them get a little more control of a, of a, of a process. And, and by the way, if Democrats lose this election to Trump, there's going to be a demand for like gatekeepers. So there's yeah, going to yeah. be a demand for whatever side wins or loses. There is going to be a demand for uh, the party to really get their act together. Tom Perez is a very weak uh, chairman. Uh, I don't think that's an unpopular or a controversial opinion, even among Democrats. Uh, nice guy, but not someone who has the capital to really push things through. And he was rolled over by, by the Bernie side of the party. Yeah. Um, I don't think he needed to, to kind of dilute the, the impact of delegates, but he did it voluntarily. Um, but yeah, no, I, I don't think it's getting better. It, until things hit rock bottom, that, that's the way, when you lose a war, when, you, when, you, when things just totally go to hell, that's when reforms, that's when things that are productive get, get done. So I, I don't think things change unless, look, like Bernie wins the nomination, there's a landslide election, Trump wins, right. then I think there would be some uni- unity to, to get, get their act, for the party to get their act together. Yeah, I mean, it's weird. I mean, Bernie is shaping up to be the left's Barry Goldwater. He's going to push the party to be sort of ideologically pure on sort of this democratic socialism stuff. And at the same time, conceivably, <laughs> go on to lose like 44 states. You know, I mean, I don't know that that's going to happen. Well, I, I will say that given how polarized and especially negative, pol- the fact that you Bernie's right. going to get, there's going to be Democrats. He's going to get 45% of the vote. In I had Matt Bennett on yeah. from Third Way, which is probably the most anti-Bernie institutional group within the Democratic Party. And he, Matt, who's really bright, went on for all the oppo and all the reasons that Bernie is going to be an absolute electoral disaster. And then I asked him, um, well, is there anyone at Third Way that would vote or third party or would vote for Trump. No, we're all voting for Bernie. Yeah. And I said, well, isn't that the argument that Bernie people are making that, look, negative polarization, we're all tribal. You know, you may not like Bernie if you're a Democrat. You may hate him, but he's better than Trump and you're still going to show up to vote for him. Now, Matt said that he thinks that he, he may not represent and D.C. Democrats may not represent sort of the broader swing vote in the Midwest and, and so on. But 
you know, I I don't think it's possible to have a true Nixon yeah, no, I think two election. Yeah, I, mean, I, think right. I mean, this is what's driving some of Bernie's support. He can point to polls. And again, I don't think they're particularly predictive, but he can point to polls saying, hey, I beat Trump in, in a bunch of these battleground states. You know, I'm actually electable. National polls show me on top of, of, of the president. So that also is sort of driving... This, this dynamic where, you know, look, the second Bernie gets the nomination, there's a lot of oppo, there's a lot of scrutiny he's going to get that hasn't been taking place, and it's going to change the, change the dynamic. But I also think that Bernie can say, hey, that's, that's already priced in to some extent right. uh, where the campaign is. And, you know, you look at the weird erotic fiction that I wrote in the 1970s, look what Donald Trump has done, right? I mean, so that, that, that sort of stuff kind of cancels out for every partisan. One of Matt's strongest points, and I think, you know, you look at polls that ask whether voters will vote for a socialist, and it's less, well less than 50 percent, and socialism is still toxic politically. Now, Bernie likes to call himself a democratic socialist. Right. Um, maybe that's a more sellable point. I don't think so. But what Matt was saying on the podcast, and, and, and it was really fascinating, is the guy was never called himself a democratic socialist throughout most of his right. political career. He was the real deal. He was the true red socialist. And there's plenty of examples of him writing op-eds and being on TV and then actually making the, the, tr- the true true blue case for socialism. He didn't, didn't hedge it at all. And I think that, I mean, that is going to really be a problem. I mean, Warren made a attempt uh, early on to say, I I want a lot of reforms, but I'm a capitalist. I mean, she did know that that was politically toxic um, in a way that other bits of baggage aren't. Uh, I don't think Bernie has really grappled with the notion that it may sound good. Maybe you put a positive spin on it. One of the things, I guess what he's saying lately is that, you know, Trump is for socialism for rich people and maybe that works a little bit, but ultimately his long record is going to come back to haunt him. So, um, I mean, I just, one last thing on that fully stipulated that I travel in atypical circles and all that kind of stuff. Um, but purely on the level of anecdote, I know lots of people who, donor class people, Washington egghead type people, who would vote for a Bloomberg, conservatives I'm talking about, vote for a Bloomberg, maybe vote for a Klobuchar unless something new come, kicks out, that kind of thing. Think about it with Buttigieg, but maybe not, but certainly not be passionately opposed, but would rather shave with a cheese grater than vote for Bernie Sanders and will vote for Trump over Bernie Sanders. And I have to think that there's, I mean, I guess it goes back to this, the the the, the fundamental question, right? Is the, is the electorate, is the, is, is the way to win the Obama base argument or is it the, uh, capture the Obama Trump voter middle of the road voters do if you had to guess all other things being equal and I understand it's very candidate dependent what is the actual better strategy for the Democrats so here's my uh, back of the envelope math for, for that question number one I don't think that just just turning out the base is good enough to win an election I mean, uh-huh. even unless you had Obama that would re- do everything persuasion turnout just simply turning out the base won't win uh, Democrats the election. To me, it comes down to the two groups of persuadable voters that that moved uh, either to Trump or didn't vote enough for the Democrats to give them the win, give Hillary the win in 2016. You know, there's the suburban voters that made up the, the House majority in 2018. And they, if you actually look at the data from 2016, Trump did maybe a little better than expected. Uh, Hillary made gains. She did very well. But if you talk to the Clinton campaign, they were surprised how many Republicans in suburban districts initially won that, that first. House round yeah. and how Trump was able to hold just enough. So I think Trump talks about suburban 
women. Yeah. He won, he's talking about white suburban women, but right. he, he liked he liked to say at some point about in his rallies that he won like white women, and and, yeah. and that that was also in the suburbs. He actually did poorly, but not badly enough to to lose the election. And those voters migrated away from Trump, even those who voted for him in 2016 in the midterm. So those are going to be critical votes, swing votes that are going to make up the election. Is that the best data? Is that the best data indicating that is how they voted in 2018? Or do we have other polling data that shows that as well? Well, yeah, I look at the exits, the exit uh-huh. polls from 2016 and then compare it to 2018. Um, and, and you can see the drop off among the, those types of voters, white, white suburban affluent sure. voters. Um, the tax cut that, that Trump passed didn't make, make an ounce of difference. These are all anti. They really don't like Trump, but yeah. they also don't like socialism. And yeah. that, 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 that's a vote that's very much in play. The other side of the coin is the working class kind of low information, independent voters in the Midwest. Um, these are voters that were Obama Trump voters. Broadly speaking, they're liberal on economics. In fact, Bernie's, you know, I don't think they like socialism, but probably if you gave a list of Bernie's proposals, they probably wouldn't find a lot of lot of things to be that upset about. Uh-huh. Uh, but they're also culturally conservative. Uh, they don't they, they they migrated away from the Democratic Party as much on cultural issues than than economic issues. And I think the best case for Bernie is that he wins these voters back, or he he makes enough inroads with them on economic grounds, uh, and then doesn't. Maybe because he's running against Trump, maybe he holds enough of the suburban voters. That's a very optimistic scenario. Mm -hmm. I think if you look deeper at these Obama Trump, and I was in Iowa where you had like, this is like the apex of the Obama Trump uh, electorate. And boy, even talking to Democrats who talked about their friends who voted Obama Trump, most people would say most of them are still with Trump. And and if you dug deeper, you would hear a lot more about cultural issues, immigration, gay gay marriage, guns, than about sort of the pocketbook issues that used to be the dominant sauce in in our politics. So, you know, Bernie has, I can see Bernie's formula. You could could say, you know, maybe he doesn't totally collapse with suburban voters because of polarization. And then, you know, he makes some inroads with some of the new Trump voters. But boy, that's 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 an inside straight right there. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me like Bernie, long term, made a real mistake moving to the center, as it were, on guns and immigration. Remember, there was that interview where he thought open, he denounced open borders as a coke-backed scheme to bring down the value of labor, and um, and this is a personal peeve of mine. Because uh, they did it with Howard Dean too, where he had a pretty good NRA rating for a while, and so did Bernie for a while. That's in part because read the Vermont state constitution; it comes very close to saying "Thou shalt carry a gun at all times." You know, so there's very little that a governor there could ever do, or a senator could ever do in Vermont. It was a pro-gun state, pro-gun culture, and all that kind of stuff. But if he had stayed, sort of, I mean, this is sort of a Tucker Carlson thing, right? Yeah. yeah. Economic. Statism, libertarian, uh, economic socialism, or whatever you want to call it, or progressivism, but cultural conservatism. If he had stuck more to that kind of stuff, I think he'd be in better shape. Well, you can see that old version of Bernie on the debate stage. Yeah. Like, in some of these debates, there's sort of the round where you get the woke questions. And Bernie is just unable to, arti- even though he had, his supporters now are much more diverse and much more with that movement, yeah. unlike 2016, where he really struggled to get any, any non-white support. Uh, but... Look at his answers to those questions. He he tries yeah. to pivot to, to class. He's a he's a you know he's sort of an old school Marxist. Right. Culture is sort of foreign to him. You know Vermont and NRA I think endorsed him in his first congressional race because he was running against an anti NRA Republican and he had to apologize. Hillary tried to to, to hit him with that yeah. issue in in 2016 and immigration. Yeah, I mean the old school like left wing view on immigration was let's not have like competition for. Right. 
for like low income um, work. And he's been trying to make amends for that. And his people are so loyal, they're not really pushing him on, on those issues. But you can tell that Bernie is not a true blue, you know, culture guy. That, that, that's that's why Warren, you know, that's where she's trying to make her, her inroads. And clearly there's a limited constituency for that stuff. All right. So let's switch because um, uh, you had a really good piece know, a couple of weeks ago on how the uh, that while Trump is raising scads of cash, the House GOP is not right and is having trouble getting the best candidates to run. We'll move to the Senate in a second because we want to save the sexy stuff for that for the last. Um, but in terms of how the House is going, what are the odds GOP can take back the House? How much does it have to do with what happens on the top of the ticket? Um, how does it look right now? Low, low chance. Bernie Sanders, if he's the nominee, might might change things a little bit. But um, one of the cool things, I know it seems unsexy to cover house races. That was my first job uh, at the hotline. And Chuck Todd told me this lesson about house races, and it really has stuck with me since. He said house races are sort of the police beat of uh-huh. politics. You you find trends, you see things that are going on under the radar that percolate up to the top later on. And you know, one of the things that's happening this this year is that even as you know, impeachment was supposed to drive enthusiasm for Republicans, even though, you know, you you see Republicans leak polls that show, "Hey, we we're actually doing really well in a bunch of a bunch of districts." The reality is they haven't even gotten good candidates in, in these easy seats, these, these yeah. Trump seats that are supposed to be gimme contests. They, there are a bunch of them where they just don't have a warm body or anyone who's credible to, to run. And when you, t- you know, I would talk to them and talk to the party committees and really challenge them on what's, what's happening here. And they're kind of, you know, they're, they're speechless. I, I think there's sort of this performative aspect in the Trump era where it's better to get attention on social media by, by getting, getting clicks and saying you know, obnoxious things. And you're not doing the basic blocking and tackling of raising money and getting candidates to, to run. Right. And, you know, like I could give a bunch of nitty gritty examples, but, you know, like um, this guy, Antonio Delgado, very liberal uh, Democrat, got elected in the wave uh, is, is a freshman who supports the Green New Deal. It's pretty, it's pretty beatable in a Trump mm-hmm. district. And there's no, the, the, the person running is like a fashion designer who raised 20 bucks for her. <laughs> I mean, it, it, and, and, the, and the good candidate they wanted decided he's, he's not interested. What is the reason? What, so what is your theory or reporting on why the good candidates don't want to do it? My theory would be that Trump has so thoroughly dominated the party that, and Trumpism in a more broad sense that all the money is going to both the president and these members who are not in tough districts like, right. you know, uh, Stefanik, uh, not really in a tough district, and uh, Doug, uh, Jim, Jim Jordan and uh, Devin Nunes. These guys are in safe seats and they're raising gazillion dollars. Yeah, yeah. And the people who need it to get, you know, McCarthy into the majority are getting bupkis. Um and there's this again. This goes back to sort of the, the institutions collapsing, and this performative celebrity is what what gets you currency in in, in politics. You know, Trump, they, they, the Republicans started this sort of fundraising uh, portal to help their donors give money to the most vulnerable members or to top top challengers. Mm-hmm. And they found that everyone's giving their money to Trump or yeah. to like five members that were stars during the impeachment uh, in the impeachment hearings, and none of them are in, have any pol- political skin in the game. Whereas the people that really could make a difference, they're getting like. You know, pennies on the dollar. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a problem. I mean, Democrats, to their credit, I, 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 I've always observed this anecdotally. I don't know if there's like a study that proves this, but the Democrats I talk to, people who are kind of activists that like politics, they are into the horse race. They they follow. There are a lot more Democrats and liberals that follow mm-hmm. House and Senate races and you know every primary and every rule in the caucuses versus Republicans and conservatives. And I, I think that's what's 
translating into into what we're seeing now. Trump has gotten a lot of people to pay more attention to get in the game, but when it comes to actual you know, in-depth knowledge about where to give money and, and which races to play in and who are the new stars of the future. There's just not as much aptitude, broadly speaking, within the conservative movement. Yeah, and also there's just sort of the, I mean, you sort of describe it, but it's the the sort of Fox News effect, right? Where, um, you know, I remember, it still infuriates me, um, uh, Governor of Florida, what's his name? Oh, uh, DeSantis. DeSantis. When he was running in the primary in Florida, um, you know, he reads his, you know, he reads the art of the deal to his inf- his little, his toddler. He has his baby, you know, in a Make America Great onesie. They're building, you know, we're going to build that wall. I mean, I, I, as someone who really went hammer and tongs against liberals for politicizing children, I just, the hypocrisy would make me, you know, make my eyes pop out if I didn't criticize that too. But he's also running as a governor, which, you know, we don't live in a parliamentary system to begin with. So it drives me crazy when House members or or when congressional candidates talk about being loyal to the president. But a governor really is not supposed to pledge allegiance to a president. Well, there's an interesting postscript to DeSantis and I would say the other governor that Trump helped get elect in Georgia, Brian Kemp. They both ran as Trumpists. They got the endorsement on Twitter by the president. And once they got elected... Knowing that they need to get reelected with a much different, you know, base of issues, right? They they became I don't want to call them moderates, but they, you know, DeSantis is focused on education spending, yeah, ever, saving the average governor now. Yeah, you know, he has a seven, I think sixty five, seventy percent approval rating, almost double what he had during that election. Yeah, um, you know, and he's and he's focusing on Hispanic voters, Africa. He's built like a Jeb Bush type coalition, even though he ran that ad, he ran yeah. as a Trumpist and ran that ad where he's telling the art of the deal stories to his infant, which you know it was cringeworthy, but. You but it talk, worked. But you talk to Republican senators. I mean, this is sort of, you know, you hear this all the time now. But you know, the performative aspect of politics is so much greater under Trump because like, two thirds of the senators that are Republicans that that vote with Trump a hundred percent and defend him and his most egregious conduct almost all the time. You have a private conversation with them. They they say the same things and they right. they, they they think that they can kind of manage the policy and, and the president. I don't think that's really holding very well, but but that's how that's that's what keep keeps them um, doing their job and not trying to get over not trying to overact to the controversies. But you know, in the when you're a governor, you actually can govern differently, and the president's not really paying attention to you. And Kemp, you know, Kemp picked a woman, a suburban woman, a businesswoman to to fill a vacant Senate seat that a lot of conservatives were really ticked off about because Doug Collins was, was sort of right. next in line, and he's now running as well. So these 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 Republicans that got Trump support, they were looking at as like 100% Trumpist have all of a sudden governed in a totally different way. You can do that as a governor. You can't really do that on Capitol Hill. Yeah, so uh, this raises a question I've talked about a couple times on here and that vexes me greatly because of this effort to purge the ranks of sort of conservative punditry of Trump critical voices because that as if the the analysts and the pundits should be subjected to the same sort of pressures that the politicians are, and we should all sing from the same hymnal and find everything that Trump does to be absolutely wonderful. Um, I've asked congressmen and senators this question, but you talk to more of them. What is your guess among both on House side and Senate side? Um, how many of them have actually drunk the Kool-Aid on Trump and really think he's awesome, he's doing great, um, agree with them philosophically, um, think the tweets are awesome, which I think is a great die marker on this kind of thing, 
And how many of them are like, oh, God, he makes everything more difficult. I wish, you know, I can't wait for this to be over. The true Trumpists, at least as of maybe a year ago, maybe a third of, of – oh, that's generous. Maybe. Of the House side. Of, of both the House. Maybe the Senate is a little lower. Um, but I think it's harder to distinguish the two these days. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the war- that, That's why I think the warning of giving Trump a second term would really ratify changes in the party that even if you think in your deepest of consciences you're not a Trump guy, you just are doing it for the party, well, th- that all blurs together once, once the guy gets a second term. And, and, and I'm already starting to see members who are sort of deluding themselves that, that, that there is a difference uh, uh, these days. Um, and also, as Trump, I think, feels more comfortable. He's yeah. clearly his final year in office is bolder. Is you know, people, people say the shackles are off. We'll see what happens going into the election. But uh, the conduct is more likely to be pushing the limits. He, he he's realized that he, he he knows how Washington works. He's feels more comfortable in office. I think those pressures are going to be even more. And uh, what we've seen so far is that you're not going other than Mitt Romney. Really, you're not getting any any real pushback. The biggest thing to me that was a sign of the Trump dominance over the party is just these swing state members that are in elections. And the conventional wisdom a couple of years ago, certainly in 2018, was that you needed to have a little bit of space to win an election in a purple district. Uh, yeah. Now even Susan Collins in Maine, most vulnerable, one of the most vulnerable senators, her people know that she cannot win without Trump voters. If she says yeah. anything critical, even in the mildest fashion, she's likely to not get people showing up for her and she's going to lose no matter what. So even the the blue state, purple state, purple district members realize that they can't break with Trump even though they may lose anyways uh, because he, he's not that appealing in their states or districts. So – yeah, I mean, I had a senator say to me that, um, well, look, we now know what the Trump presidency looks like. We've had it for three years. We'll have it for four. And then if he gets reelected, we'll have the same thing for four more years. I just think that's completely wrong, right? With you know, all of the circuit breakers like Mattis, Tillerson, all, they're all gone. I actually asked a very prominent legal federal society type recently, what happens if God forbid, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Let's just say, let's just say that her seat opens up on the bench, and there is talk. I don't know if it's like super serious talk or just concern or whatever, but that not only is Jay Sekulow's name bandied around, right, which would make Harriet Myers seem like you know Oliver Wendell Holmes, um, but Pam Bondi, they're talking about as as filling the next vacancy on the court, which you know, I mean. That's that's like you accidentally opened some long buried Egyptian tomb, and <laughs> curses went across the land. Um, and so, I, but there's just basically no one in the White House now. We're seeing even Bob Barr, you know, struggling with this. The idea that Trump will be as constrained as he was in his first term just strikes me as nuts. And it's not just a Trump factor, keep in mind. I mean, presidents that feel more comfortable in office, that get reelected, feel more emboldened to do things that may be less politically popular. Every administration goes off the rails in the second term. David Axelrod was quote, and I wrote a column about this when Obama was president, and it got a lot of, a lot of criticism uh, from, from the White House that, you know, Axelrod was talking about Obama's Bullworth moments, that he now yeah. is, you know, Obama ran sort of at odds with his true beliefs in many ways in 2008. And, uh, you don't say. Marriage. I mean, remember Biden was the head of him. You know, you yeah. know, we, we go on and on. And Axelrod, right after the reelect, basically said Obama's going to be free to do what he wants. Right. Executive orders on him. You know, everything that Axelrod previewed actually came to fruition. I think actually that's an underappreciated reason why Hillary law. I mean, Hillary had her own issues, obviously, but the cultural move left 
in the second term when Obama felt like he could do anything he wanted, I think had a big political cost for the Democratic Party. And, uh, you know, and, and even even on the military, the foreign policy, I think, is going to be a big, big area where, where Trump is going to feel more um, willing to do what he wants. I mean, Obama had the surge in Afghanistan, but once he felt more comfortable with the military, then, then, he, then he withdrew the troops from Iraq uh, later in, in the run up to the election. So I, I think people who think that this is you know, as un- as chaotic, as unstable as it's going to get, I think they're deluding themselves. Um, Obama certainly, um, you know, if he's any any example, and he's, I'm not trying to compare apples to apples, but clearly he felt more emboldened in his second term to do things that may not have been politically popular. W, you know, that's w when too, yeah. had, you know, the privatized Social Security stuff. And, mm-hmm. and also there's just like, historically, second terms have more kind of like, first of all, a lot of cabinet officials start looking to like what their political future is going to be and they start going off the reservation and, and also just discipline kind of falls apart and, um, uh, you know, that you get Iran Contra, you get most, you know, you get Lewinsky, most of the scandals of presidencies, uh, get Watergate, right. Happen in the second term. And so, I mean, I just think it's going to be, this is not an argument for or against electing Trump. People know, you know, my basic views on that. I just think it's going to be a wild right. Run. No, just as an anal- analyst, it, it's you, the biggest mistake I think a lot of analysts make is they always look at the past to predict the future. Yeah, the future doesn't really really always follow what what the past has has brought us. Uh, so I think that that's a you know it's when you look at anything politically, you know. It, and even the party leadership, when they tried to design these 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 nomination rules, they they, they looked at the last election when that gave absolutely no insight to, to to what was going to come. So I think that's the biggest when it comes to Trump. Assuming there's going to be sort of a straight line in how he's governed, I I, I think that's uh, that that's an error in, in judgment. Um. So we didn't cover the Senate. Odds that the Republicans hold on to the Senate. Uh. Who who among the Republicans do you think where did, where who picks up what seats where? Well, so this is the, the Senate is where the nominee makes the most difference. I mean, I think Sanders also could cost his party the presidency, but the battlegrounds that are going to be so critical are your suburban, diverse, upscale Sunbelt states that, right. that Sanders underperform. I mean, actually, even the polls right now show Sanders doing a lot worse in like North Carolina, Georgia, some of these southern states that are coming on the board for Democrats, Arizona, another big one. Um, so I, I think Bernie, if he was the nominee, not only would um, Republicans hold the Senate, but they they could actually surprise and like call, they, they could actually hold hold their fifty three seat majority and um, pick up Alabama. And and they're gonna, I mean, Alabama seems yeah. all but all but gone for the Democrats. Now I do think that Senate is in play. Um, you have the the reverse of that, that 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 notion is that these are states that are becoming a little more democratic. That they're getting more diverse. They're very suburban. Where Trump and Trump is taking a nosedive in some of these states with his job approval. Uh, the problem is Democrats need to run the table. And it's hard, even in a good year, it's, right. it, on a presidential year, it's hard to run the table. I think that we go race by race. Alabama is likely to give them another seat with, with Doug Jones. That, that That's more of an anomaly. Uh, Colorado with Cory Gardner and Arizona with uh, Martha, Martha McSally. Th- th- those two seats are looking tough. Um, McSally, mostly because she's not a great politician, mm-hmm. never won an election statewide. Has, has you know she had that moment on CNN attacking uh, my friend Manu Raju and calling how, him a liberal so, hack. How much uh, strategy do you think went into that? Little. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, whether I've heard different things on whether it was preordained or it probably was to some extent. Uh, but McSally has been someone who's always had a sort of a tin political ear. Mm-hmm. Um, you make a move like that later in the election when maybe you're a little desperate to get the base juiced up. You don't do it this this far out when you really need suburban voters that, that cost you the last election. I, I just don't think it's a smart move. If she loses, you're, since you're the political nerd here, um, 
And I mean that lovingly. Um, <laughs> would she be the first U.S. senator to lose two elections in two years? <laughs> that, that is like a very political geeky question. Yeah, it would be up there. Um, I mean, and keep in mind, here, here's a little bit of Arizona trivia. Uh, the Democrats have not won a Senate seat in Arizona before last, last election since 1988. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, Kirsten Cinema ran against Martha McSally. Right. Kirsten Cinema actually used to be sort of a socialist Green yeah. Party activist a long time ago herself, and she was able to kind of just re- transform herself into sort of a suburban moderate favorite and won pretty pretty comfortably. Um, that was a big warning sign for McSally, and now McSally is going up against Gabby Gifford's uh, husband Mark right. Kelly, who's raising tons of money and seems to be pretty pretty sharp uh, politically. Cory Gardner is a better politician. Colorado's just a very very tough state, and he's a freshman who needs to really show uh, some real serious political skill to, to get us. And he's got to overperform Trump there, right? By a lot. I yeah. Mean, uh, he will overperform Trump. The qu- problem is he needs to overperform by like six, seven points. And yeah. that's a tough thing to do. Um, just out of curiosity, it was predicted, I remember, in the um, the Oracle of Morning Joe, that when McSally did that, sounded off on, on Manu, uh, that... Yeah, she's going to raise a bunch of money off of this, but so is Giffords. Is that what happened? Everyone raised a lot of money, um, and and if you talk to Republicans, they'll they'll basically tell you a version of this, and and it's not not totally you know spin. It, 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 there's a truth to it that she needs the she only wins if she can get Trump voters. Trump Trump wins the state. He carries McSally along with her, um, with him rather. Um, the the flaw with that argument, though, is Arizona is one of the few states left that actually has swing voters. And, yeah. And, and McSally was one of the rare politicians to lose about 15 percent of the Republican vote in the election. And these are, if you look at the – you really geek out and look at the precinct data, these are affluent suburban Phoenix air, voters that voted McCain, that, that like Republicans. They voted for Doug Ducey, who's a conservative, yeah. uh, but just had a problem with McSally. And I would argue it's because she was a very strident partisan figure that didn't know how to tack back to the middle in the last campaign. Maybe at the end of the campaign, if you're losing, then you, you put, put, push the alarm button and, and, and attack the media and try to get the base ginned up. When you do that a year before the election, it's a sign of panic. Yeah. Just, you you want to keep your options open as a good politician. You don't want to kind of confine yourself to just relying on Trump to bail you out. So the fact that they had to do that is either a really big sign of weakness or just a sign of bad political skill. So right now, you'd argue that if you had to bet, Republicans hold on to the Senate. Yeah, I think they lose a couple seats, um, maybe lose two seats, if I had to, to guess right now. Maine is, Susan Collins is in a lot of trouble, uh-huh. um, and she's been one of the top politicians. But these days, people don't give a lot of credit for, you know, independence. They, they tend to vote their party, you know, colors. Um, and her polling is, is pretty bad in Maine. Um, it's taken a big hit. Did the Mitt Romney thing hurt her? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, if you enough Republicans will, will, if they weren't being honest enough, the thing that ticked them off about Romney wasn't so much his principled vote, but the fact that he really put a lot of uh, Senate and House Republicans in a tough spot. He bailed out some, you know, these Democrats that voted for impeachment, some of them in the redder districts had some some defending them. You know, they they were in a little bit of a hot situation. Yeah. Now they can point to Romney and say, well, you know, look, this this Romney's with it. I'm with that issue. Yeah. And also just. If you didn't have, if Romney hadn't done that, and look, I, I'm, I'll just put my conservative hat on. I'm very supportive of what Romney did. I think his his stated reasons were correct and, um, or at least very defensible. I might, you know, I mean, the interesting question for me about Romney is, would he have voted that way if his was the deciding vote to remove? And I'm not sure if the answer is there. 
And there was, I mean, remember, Utah is a fascinating yeah. political state. You know, Trump liked to say that he's more popular than Romney in Utah, but I don't think that's true. Yeah. Uh, remember, Evan McMullen got, what, like 25% of the vote in the presidential race? Yeah. Uh, that, that's a pretty remarkable statistic. So the really the Mormon population, the, the Republicans in Utah are much more anti-Trump than your average Republican. So I don't think it was, I think it was a 100% principled vote on Romney's behalf. But he had the fact that he's not up for re-election for another four years and the fact that he's in a unique state where there's a lot of respect for his brand of politics. I, I think that, that helped him out yeah. too. I mean, was, uh, but if he hadn't done it, right, if that wasn't the factor, then Susan Collins, Marco Rubio, and Lamar Alexander looked like they were taking this principled, nuanced stand. And then all of a sudden Romney... And I think Romney understands this, which is one of the reasons why he was so apologetic to his colleagues and wrote those personal notes and all that kind of stuff. Makes them all of a sudden seem like partisans, which I, I would argue they, that they were. But um, well, he, he called the, the, I mean, to be perfectly blunt, he called the, the, the arguments that Alexander and Collins were making as bankrupt as they looked at, at yeah. first glance. Like he basically laid it to, for what it was. And that, that politically is, is also very damaging for someone like Collins, who was in a really tough re-election. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've been saying for a long time now, uh, and I, I think I got to sort of revise it because it, the case for Trump getting reelected looks stronger and stronger right now. Snapshots aren't predictive, yada, yada, yada. We agree with all that. But I would say for a long time, if you just look at the historical numbers, Trump can't win, but the Democrats can lose, right? Is that like a president who's never really been reliably over 50 in any polling average and all that kind of stuff who has this much, a Republican president has this much trouble in suburbs, which were used to be the home of the Republican Party. Um, all the Democrats have to do is put up a halfway decent return to normalcy candidate and they win. They just seem determined not to do that. So where, where, how do you handicap the future? None of this is, well, I'm not asking for a full prediction, but you know, if the election were held today, well, that's exactly my thinking. And, and I, I, if I, if you want me to put a number on it, this is sort of my ballpark thinking. If Bernie or some Warren, who I don't think is viable at this point, but if one of those two won the nomination, thirty-five uh, percent chance that they could win the presidency. Mm -hmm. If it was someone in the more mainstream wing of the party, I think sixty-five percent. Um, you know, the, the skinny of my analysis is that I don't think economics really are the defining issues of our politics these days. It's culture and right. and Trump. Um, and Trump does. And Democrats do have a floor that they can rely on against Trump. But if you nominate someone so you know that alienates so many critical voters, I just think you're playing with fire. Bloomberg is the wild card. Yeah. Um, and so when I say moderate, I'm really talking about someone like Klobuchar, Biden, or uh, uh, Buttigieg. Buttigieg is also a wild card, I would say. I Buttigieg is actually much more left wing than he's, he just doesn't yeah. seem like it. He, he, and, 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 and there are a lot of electability issues that he has. We, and that, that, that's another story for another time. Bloomberg is the bigger wild card because having a billionaire as the representative of the Democratic Party, if that's what it came to, someone who's not really that great at retail politics, uh, I don't think he would be a favorite necessarily. I, I think maybe it's more 50 50 with Bloomberg. I, I don't buy the polls that show him with, with a sizable lead. I mean, I think the key, the key, sweet spot for the part for the Democratic Party is you need to get someone that's not going to tick off the Bernie folks. Right. But and, and it's broadly acceptable to enough moderates. And and there are a lot of candidates that fit fit the bill. Klobuchar, in my mind, is by far the strongest candidate that the, the Democrats could pick. Bloomberg, you know, he definitely has some advantages going for him. But ha boy, having a billionaire, uh, it, it, he's not going to compete with those with those Obama Trump voters. That that's going to be yeah. a problem. And the notion that Bloomberg is a savior for the party, I'm not I'm not sold at that that prospect. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems to me, I mean, I think you're right. The issue, the, 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 the surest strategy, particularly since Biden appears to be imploding, um, is to find the candidate who makes Trump the issue, not them, right? right? And there's a I mean, the baggage with Bloomberg is interesting baggage. It's not like your normal baggage because it's billionaire baggage and all that kind of stuff. And he spoke at the 2004 convention for Bush, which that ad is going to hurt at some point when it comes up. Um, Bernie's baggage is interesting, too, because he's dedicated most of his life to seizing the means of production. And Klobuchar comes across as your neighbor's mom who, like, may be a career person, but also can like make you a grilled cheese sandwich and um and that and can say shame on you when you do stuff right because this this seems to me is one of the great problems that republican that politicians have is you cannot stoop to trump's level and win because he's authentic gutter fighter and everyone else comes across as faking it and so you hold them to a higher standard and he's like why are you stooping to his level yada yada, yada. so just don't play the game and just make people feel embarrassed for for supporting Trump's boorishness seems like the winning strategy for a Democrat. It just I, I have a hard time seeing Klobuchar getting through the process. Yeah, I do, too. I, I would not bet a lot of money that she's going to win the nomination. But look, I mean, I think what she did in New Hampshire and even Iowa shows the potential that, that if people were paying attention to her earlier on and there was a smaller yeah. field, I think she could have gotten that attention earlier. Um, Who's the- fallen out that you think could have done that? You know, I liked Booker. I thought Booker was – now, I talked to a lot of Republicans and Democrats who think I'm crazy that Booker yeah. was and, – and I think everyone has their own their own, their own stylistic things that really make you think a candidate's better or worse. Um, a lot of people I talked to thought Booker was not authentic and he came across as a little weird. Um, I thought the fact that he had an executive background, he's charismatic, the, the, the African-American vote. I, I thought there was something there mm-hmm. that he could have really relied on. Um, the, the, for, going back to Klobuchar – she like you said, Jonah. She comes across as sort of that suburban mom. You know, it's hard, hard. I mean, even though she has a reputation on the hill as being something else, um, she, you know, she comes across very well with those suburban voters. And it, you know, look at the candidates that won the House seats to get Pelosi the majority. They were basically yeah. a bunch of Amy Klobuchar's. And electorally, what's fascinating about and Minnesota is a, a competitive state, uh, and it's been that way for a little while. She actually runs up the score with working class voters. Mm-hmm. She won. I mean, she likes to say this on the campaign trail now, but. She she carried Michelle Bachman's district, uh, even though people, when she was known and people knew she was a pretty left of center Democrat. Um, she wins men. Um, mm-hmm. She does well with men, which is not something a lot of these other candidates can really lay claim to. So, and, and she's also from her. She talks. She's from Minneapolis, Hennepin County, but she has roots in in, in I, her family. I think is from the Iron Range, and she has a long history of really winning these Trump voters, uh, mm-hmm. which which I don't. Hillary Clinton actually always ran way behind the Democratic ticket. If you looked at her yeah. electoral history, people like to ignore it, but she always ran well behind Schumer, well behind you know Al Gore when she was on the same ticket in two thousand. Um, same with uh, same with uh, you know a lot of these other candidates that really f- fell off, Kamala Harris, and mm-hmm. they didn't have the electoral history. You know, I think when you're on the ballot and you prove that you can do it for three terms and you're, you've got that record, I think that that's actually pretty a pretty important set of. Uh, data to, to look at. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think on paper, theoretically, if Democrats could just pick someone from that field and put them in the in the, in the nomination square, I do think Klobuchar brings the most to the table. Um, all right. So last question because we got to get out of here. Um, um, what single or cluster of bellwethers 
do you look for in the next year to give you a sense of either where the primary is going or the general or just the general or the, 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 the relative positions of the two parties? What are like some tells that you say, oh, if that goes that way, this means X? As far as the presidential, I mean, the two states that, that are really going to be close and fascinating, I think, are Wisconsin and Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a coincidence that the Democrats just announced they're doing a debate in Arizona. I could see Trump winning Wisconsin because of his strength with working class voters, which that, that's the core of the Wisconsin electorate. And I could see Democrats, if at least they nominate someone more moderate, could do really well in Arizona, just like Kirsten Cinema did. In, in 2018. Uh, and Arizona would be the insurance policy for Democrats because right. if you look at the polls, I think you probably have to give Democrats the advantage in, in Michigan. And I think Pennsylvania still leans uh, Democrat. Wisconsin is going the other way. Um, and, and, and that's going to be a problem. That's why the convention's in Milwaukee. That's why there's a lot of talk about you know the Midwest being, being so important. Um, but Arizona, if, if they lose Arizona, if the Democrats lose Arizona, they could make it up in – lose Wisconsin, sorry. They could make it up in Arizona. So I think those two states are going to be the tipping points mm-hmm. on election night. I, I will – just coming back from Iowa a couple of weeks ago, there's, I don't think Iowa's going to go Democrat. I think it's still pretty, pretty favorable to Trump. There are three big House races. Um, and like I said, House races often tell you what's happening at the presidential level. That's one state where Republicans have been able to get good candidates. They've been able to kind of meld the Trump wing of the party with the more established. They've got like some state legislators and there's like a TV anchor, a former member of Congress that are running that are really good candidates that are raising money. Um, if they can gain traction early on and, and maybe look like they can win some seats in Iowa. Uh, that Iowa is one of these states that just swings wildly in yeah. one direction or another. If Republicans, even if they don't win, even if Democrats don't compete at the presidential level, if, if Republicans are making inroads early on in these House races, I think that actually would be a big problem for Democrats broadly. Uh-huh. Josh Krasheyer, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jonah.